Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly, your curated selection of the week's science stories. I'm Christy Taylor in Wisconsin. And I'm Chelsea White in New York. This week on the podcast, the mystery of the slowly spinning black holes, new advances in beaming electrical power from space, you heard me, and why apes tease each other for fun. Plus, some of the best love languages from the animal world, and why microbes are the secret to tasty tea. But first, Michael LePage is here with an exciting new story about efforts to treat blindness caused by certain conditions like glaucoma, which damage the optic nerve. In this case, researchers managed to regenerate the optic nerve in mice, partly restoring their vision. Michael, tell us about this research. Yes, I think if I should start by saying if anyone is listening to this whose vision has been affected by glaucoma, this work is still at an early stage and there aren't any human trials planned yet, but it does look promising. So the optic nerve is what carries information from the eye to the brain. And obviously, if the nerve cells in the optic nerve start dying, you start to lose your sight. And that's what happens in glaucoma. Glaucoma isn't actually a single condition. It's a whole bunch of disorders that all damage the optic nerve. Got it. So if what we have is a condition where nerve cells die, I guess that means that to restore vision, you have to replace or maybe somehow bring back from the dead those cells. Exactly. And so lots of teams have been working on this worldwide, and most of them are trying to approach this by growing new nerve cells outside of the body and then transplanting them into the eye, into the retina where they needed. But it's difficult for added nerve cells to integrate into the retina. And even if those problems can be overcome, treatments that involve growing cells outside the body for transplantation are always going to be really complex and expensive. So a few teams are trying this other approach where they're trying to get cells that are already in the retina to turn into new nerve cells. And now there's a team at the Children's Hospital Los Angeles that have done this. At least they've done it in mice. That's a crucial caveat, as always, uh, but still impressive. How did they get that to happen? Well, I think that's the most exciting thing about this work is it's a really simple approach. They they found this cocktail of eight chemicals that persuade these support cells around the nerve to turn into new nerve cells. And they did this simply by injecting this cocktail of eight chemicals into the eye. So it's a relatively simple approach. Some other teams are trying to sort of inject viruses into the eye to genetically alter them and things like that. This is much simpler. Yeah, simple, but it still does take an injection to the eye, right? That sounds kind of unpleasant. <laughs> yeah, I think if, if you'd lost vision, you'll definitely go for that. Sure. <laughs> anyway, so uh, when the team injected this cocktail, chemical cocktail into the eyes of mice that could not see because their optic nerves had been damaged, they saw that some of these support cells, that they, they the sort of cells that sit next to nerve cells, some of these support cells started to turn into new nerve cells. And more importantly, they also saw signs of the mice recovering some vision. So one of the key tests they did is something called the virtual cliff test. So this is where you get the mice on a transparent surface. And on one side, there's this big drop. So mice with intact vision will almost always walk on the side with no drop. But those with damaged optic nerves obviously can't see it. So they don't mind which side they're on. But anyway, after the 
mice with damaged optic nerves were treated, some of them started avoiding this drop again. Oh, well, that does sound really promising. But I guess the big question is, will it work in humans? Yeah, that is definitely the big question. We just don't know as yet. So the team has tested this cocktail on human cells growing in a dish, and they did see signs of them turning into nerve cells. But that's just the first sort of the start of the process, because for new nerve cells to restore vision in the eye, they have to grow these projections that extend all the way from the retina into the brain. And the thing about the human eye, it's that there's a lot further to go from a human eye to a human brain and from a mouse eye to a mouse brain. So there's no guarantee that this is going to work into people. That's one of the reasons this team needs to do a lot more work before they even attempt this in people. Right. And Michael, you were saying at the beginning that this could help people with glaucoma. But, you know, if this is so much work, don't we already have treatments for glaucoma? We do, but these are treatments that basically stop glaucoma getting worse. So if you detect glaucoma early enough and you start treatment, it's usually possible to save people's vision. The trouble is glaucoma is often not detected until people have already begun to lose their sight. So lots of people today are still losing their sight because of glaucoma. In fact, it's estimated that in the US alone, 6 million people have glaucoma, but so far only 3 million of them have been diagnosed and begun treatment. So this is basically a preventable disease. And I think the take-home message really is get your eyes checked regularly, especially if you're over 60 or if you have African ancestry, because glaucoma is much more common in people with African ancestry. Much like planets, stars, and galaxies, black holes are objects in space that spin. But new research has found that they might spin much slower than we thought they do. And that could tell us much more about the histories of these immense, mysterious objects. Chelsea, you're going to help us understand this story, right? Yes, this is a story from our own Leah Crane, and thanks to her, I'm totally here to explain this for you. Oh, good. Well, tell me about spinning black holes. Can we measure the speed in miles per hour? You know, what's kind of normal or assumed at this point about how they rotate? So before I answer this, I have to mention how we talk about black hole spin. Scientists don't really use miles per hour or anything like that because the rate of spin is so dependent on a black hole's size and mass that it's just not really a useful way to compare them to each other. Instead, astronomers use something called dimensionless spin, which is a cool phrase. Mm -hmm. And in dimensionless spin, a spin of one is the fastest a particular black hole could possibly spin based on the speed of light. And a spin of zero is no spin. Measuring this is really, really hard. So we didn't really know how much they should spin, but whenever they swallow up some matter, they take on that matter's angular momentum. So that should make them spin at least a little bit. Okay, that makes sense. But now we've got new research saying that they're actually spinning slower than astronomers originally thought, like compared to their sort of potential maximums. So what's going on there? Well, there are two processes going on with black holes. So there's the black hole's eating stuff or things falling into them, which speeds them up. And then there's the black holes launching jets of gas, which leak away the spin energy and slows them down. These jets are particularly active when a black hole is newly formed from a collapsed star. But a lot of models only really took the first process into account. So this new one takes both the eating stuff and the <laughs> gas jets into account. And it turns out that for most black holes, that jet actually takes up so much energy that they should only have a spin of about 0.2 or less. So according to this model, a black hole would essentially lose almost all of its spin very shortly after birth. I gotta say this all feels a bit abstract. So 
how do researchers actually, you know, know and measure this, especially when black holes are so hard to picture? Well, there's a few different lines of evidence, but the biggest one is that researchers have used gravitational waves to observe black holes merging. And it's looking like before they merge, the black holes have really low spin. And those are based on observations. And then this new work is based on simulations of the jets and their actual power to reduce spin. So that's how they're determining this spin. Got it. Are there consequences of some kind to a slower spin? You know, what do researchers find so interesting and meaningful in this? Well, there aren't huge consequences for our understanding of the universe, but it could help a lot with our understanding of black holes. And that's partly because the gravitational wave data also showed that the black hole left behind after a merger is usually spinning much faster, around 0.7. So if we can measure the spin of a black hole, we can tell if it was just born or if it's much older and has undergone mergers. All right, we're not just here to tell you the news. This week on Culture Lab, Allison Flood interviewed author Naomi Alderman about her latest book, The Future, the real-life mindset of disaster prepping, and the mystery of why humans turned to agriculture all those thousands of years ago. That's already in your feed. Plus, in next week's Escape Pod, the mysteries of sound, like the noises elephants make that we usually can't hear, the brain-tingling world of ASMR, and my personal favorite, audio illusions. That's coming Tuesday. The following message is sponsored by the UK Department for Business and Trade and the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency. The UK has long been a world leader for clinical trials and life sciences research, but after losing ground post-COVID and post-Brexit, the country has begun to rethink the landscape for clinical trials. In this sponsored New Scientist podcast, we meet James O'Shaughnessy, the chair of the UK Review into Commercial Clinical Trials, and ask how this landscape is being reinvented for a new age of medicine. Available free at newscientist.com slash podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. In news that sounds like science fiction this week, the first experiment in beaming power, like electrical power, to Earth from space has been deemed a success. Alex Wilkins covered it for the magazine. And Alex, I gotta say, this sounds like it might be used by a James Bond villain on their volcanic island surrounded by lasers and sharks. Uh, but it's real and not evil, I presume? As far as I can tell, it's not evil and it is real <laughs> science. I'll admit and I'll concede it might sound a little bit concerning, but if this works and they pull it off, it could be yet another source of renewable energy to help wean us off fossil fuels. So the basic idea has been around for decades. Put a solar panel in orbit around the Earth and you get 24-7 access to the sun at much, much higher intensities of light than you get on Earth. But the problem's always been, how do you get that solar energy all the way from space? 
down to us on the ground. So now researchers at MIT have finished an eight-month experiment, which they call the Microwave Array Power Transfer LEO experiment, or MAPLE for short. And the take-home message is it works and it might be feasible. That's really incredible to think about. How exactly did they make it work, though? Yeah, so the first thing to note is Maple was mainly focused on the wireless transmission part of the system. There wasn't actually any solar power generated in this experiment, as that's relatively less tricky to do once you get the transmission up and running. So instead, they had Maple connected to a satellite, which provides electricity, and they used these ultra-lightweight flexible chips that can convert the electricity to microwaves. They managed to transmit these microwaves both across space, but also they used them to send microwaves down towards Earth as well. There's a detector that they set up in California that was tasked with essentially collecting these microwaves. And over the course of the experiment, which began in January last year, they did this three times, which they count as a relative success. In theory, those microwaves would then be easily converted back to electricity that could rejoin our power grid on Earth and you could use to charge your phone, for instance. This really does feel like science fiction. How much power did they beam down? It's microwaves, right? So could it microwave a bag of popcorn? Uh, Not yet. So at the moment, the amounts of power they were using were really, really small. The team found that Maple could send 100 milliwatts of power through space and around just one milliwatt on the ground. If you happen to be in space, that would be enough to very slowly charge your phone, like I said earlier, but not much else. It wouldn't be possible on the ground at less than a milliwatt. But there are much bigger issues than just the power level currently, and that's making something that is much larger in size. The researchers I spoke with envisage a fully functional system that is capable of transmitting 100 megawatts of power, which would be enough to power tens of thousands of homes. A system this powerful would need to be around a square kilometre in size, which compared with 150 square centimetres or so that Maple currently is, is quite a ways off. And it would require an incredibly precise timing system. So the chips would need to coordinate their microwaves across the entire kilometre array with less than a trillionth of a second in error, If they get this wrong, then they just wouldn't be able to focus the beams properly to target those locations on Earth. Those seems like some really big caveats, Alex. So how soon might we actually be connecting space power to our homes, for example? I can almost say with certainty, not tomorrow and probably not in less than 10 years. But the researcher I spoke with was very enthusiastic that if they get enough resources, that this could become a reality in maybe a decade or so. If they can get it working, it would be an amazing source of power for Earth without all of the associated problems of using land and the vast resources that takes from mining the materials and and just the land use associated. All right, will you bear with me in a very silly question? Uh, I have to say, (laughs) this sounds very much like a power plant option. I had so I used to play SimCity as a kid, and you could build power plants. And one of the options was microwave power from space. But it had this occasional risk that the microwaves would miss and somehow fry my virtual city. Is this real? Or, you know, should we worry about those supervillains, you know, taking advantage of this technology sometime far into the future? Yeah, I think it's it's not as unreasonable as it sounds. Obviously, sending high energy beams from space sounds like it could have the potential to go wrong. I would just say that the control that the researchers have over the direction of the beam and where it goes are incredibly fine and they can really direct it very precisely. So not only would they be sending it only to the power collector, but I'm sure they would build all sorts of safety systems in place to make sure that if it looks like it's going off target, then the beam would cut out. I don't think you need to worry about your cities exploding anytime soon. (laughs) Just the supervillains. Got it. 
got a lot in common with our ape relatives, like gorillas and chimps, but did you know we also share a fondness for playfully teasing each other? Where you might embed your coworker stapler in jello to tease them, apes might poke each other, pull hair, or even steal from each other. And observing these pranks could actually help biologists unravel the evolution of where humans got their sense of humor. Reporter Chen Lai has the full story. Hi, Chen. Hello. So what do we already know about teasing in great apes? So previous studies have found that chimpanzees may engage in what's called agonistic teasing or harassment of groupmates to reinforce their hierarchical positions in a group. But we also know that great apes love to play with each other too. And if the right balance between fun and aggression is found, then teasing can be considered a form of play too. That sounds like the teasing that happens is often done in kind of a negative way. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, But researchers wanted to see if this more positive, amusing form of teasing exists and figure out how to look for it. To do that, they collected videos of five great ape species, bonobos, Sumatran orangutans, eastern and western gorillas and chimpanzees, all of whom lived in zoos. From 75 hours of video footage, the team reported 142 playful, as opposed to aggressive, teasing events across the species. These could be broken down into 18 distinct behaviours such as poking, hitting, pulling on hair and even stealing. The teasing was most typically one-sided, which meant that there was one teaser and one target. It was quite funny. It was kind of like when we joke with our friends and the teaser would always look at their targets straight after they provoked them. When there was no response from the target, the teaser would then poke them even more as if to get a rise out of them. They almost sound like uh, toddlers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, how did they differentiate this teasing to be playful as opposed to, you know, that negative or harassing teasing or teasing that might be reinforcing power dynamics? You know, what what made this the good kind? So the key indicator that a teasing event was playful was that both the teaser and the teasee were both relaxed during their interactions. In cases such as stealing, it was obvious when it was playful teasing, when the object in question wasn't useful to the teaser or if they lost interest in it quickly after swiping it. Does this playful teasing then seem to benefit the apes? And also, if I wrap Chelsea's keyboard in bubble wrap, does that benefit me somehow? (laughs) Um, It would be quite funny. But so much (laughs) like people, some lighthearted teasing is probably a good way of building social bonds between peers and could even test out social boundaries. One of the most interesting things that I found from the study was that it's likely that the last common ancestor between humans and other great apes millions of years ago probably engaged in this playful teasing too, which could have evolved into a human fondness for jokes. Okay, we just covered some of the biggest science and technology stories of the week, Chelsea, but we also talk about weird trivia sometimes. And one thing we should also talk about this week is how fast Antarctica is warming, or rather, is not warming. That's the phenomenon where it's not warming as quickly as climate scientists thought it should, right? Especially compared to the Arctic, which is the fastest warming region on the planet. Right. And you might think that if one pole is warming really fast, the other should too. And There have been a lot of theories for why this difference exists, but new research this week adds another small piece to the puzzle. And bear with me because it's kind of counterintuitive. Because of a quirk of how dry Antarctica's atmosphere is, at very high altitudes, trapped methane and carbon dioxide is actually partly cooling the atmosphere above Antarctica. This is strange. Those are greenhouse gases. Why is this happening? 
Yeah, it is strange. And atmospheric science gets complicated and technical really fast. But essentially, because different altitudes of Antarctica's atmosphere don't mix with each other very much, you can get what are called temperature inversions, so bands, basically, where the higher parts of the atmosphere are warmer than the surface, and therefore, more heat radiates out into space than is trapped at the surface. And this causes cooling of the upper atmosphere. And a research team running simulations of increasing greenhouse gas concentrations found that in Antarctica, this negative greenhouse effect depends on the amount of water vapor in the atmosphere. Warmer air holds more moisture, so the researchers think it's possible that as Antarctica continues to warm, we'll lose this negative greenhouse effect, which is currently sort of fueled by how dry it is. As a result, we may see some extra warming in Antarctica, but other researchers also say this is unlikely to be a major factor for temperatures there. Got it. So really more of a bit of climate trivia. Right. Atmospheres, they're weird. (laughs) Okay, Christy, do you drink tea? Sometimes, yeah. It feels like a nice kind of medium option between, you know, mainlining coffee and literally propping my eyelids open with little sticks like in a cartoon. (laughs) All right. Well, there's new research on how good your tea tastes. And it turns out it's not just the varieties of tea that influence the flavor. There's another secret ingredient from the roots of the tea plant itself. Is it dirt? Well, (laughs) not quite. The answer is the microbes that live on the roots. These microbes can influence what nutrients plants pull out of the soil, especially ammonia, which can influence how much nitrogen-based amino acids are in the plant. And one amino acid, called theanine, is particularly important to the flavor of green tea. It contributes a lot of that umami flavor that it sounds like you might like. So researchers in China tried to isolate root microbes that might be especially associated with high levels of theanine, and then they made synthetic microbial communities based on that and transferred them to the roots of poorer quality tea plants. And boom, they were able to improve the tea quality from those plants. So giving plants the good microbes made the tea better. Yum. What's next for this research? Yeah, so the researchers think this has huge potential for helping improve tea grown in nitrogen-poor soils without the introduction of lots of chemical fertilizers. And because tea is such a huge agricultural product in China, this would have a lot of both environmental and economic benefits for tea growers. The team is also investigating whether this synthetic microbial community that they've developed could have benefits for the nutritional value of other crops like rice. So, Chelsea, Valentine's Day was this past week, which means I think it's time for a quick roundup of love languages, science style. Are you ready? Are we talking quality time, gifts, and the like? Not quite. Instead, think more like bursting through a cloud of ink in spectacular fashion, which is what male Andrea cuttlefish do to impress would-be mates. I mean, (laughs) that's not bad either. Yeah, it's very dramatic if you look at the video. Researchers observe the males of this species also squirting smaller blobs of ink around their intended mate in the lead-up to this dramatic finale. So you get little ink blobs big ink blob and the male emerging dramatically from it, kind of like if you had a fog machine running in a stage performance. (laughs) Then he concludes his whole dance by turning iridescent, stretching his arms out super long like you might pull taffy, and then pulsing dark bands of color along one arm. Kind of like, ta-da! I mean, that is impressive. And the pictures of these guys doing this are amazing. Are there any other options, though? (laughs) Mm, Well, we have also learned this week that female scorpions get stung by males during the courtship process. And they do seem to welcome it in that they don't resist or try to eat the males, which, by the way, is something the males are in danger of. 
Scientists used to think the males were kind of pulling one over on the females and stinging them as sort of a self-defense to kind of subdue them. But now it's been observed that the females seem to be okay with it. So the new theory is that they use the male stings to actually assess how good of a mate and dad they will be. Okay, hard pass. (laughs) Do we have anything, I don't know, sweeter? Heck yeah, we do. This one, though, is more about the value of platonic friendship, this case between humans and our best friends, dogs and horses. And it turns out we've expressed that deep and abiding love by burying them with us, at least in some cases over 2,200 years ago. This comes from research of burial sites in Italy, where a small number of human graves included animal bones that did not seem to be food offerings, like a baby buried with a dog, a young man buried with parts of a horse, and even a middle-aged woman who had no sign of being a warrior buried with a 1.3-meter-tall pony. All of these animals also showed evidence of having been loved and cared for while alive, which is why the researchers conclude that these choices might have been purely in the name of, again, eternal love. Oh, that is really sweet. Thank you for that story. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find all the stories we talked about today in the show notes, and you can subscribe to this podcast on whichever app you're listening on. Plus, if you liked the great stories we're bringing you, please give us that rating or review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Keep that algorithm chugging along for us, please, and thank you. We'll be back next week. Bye for now. Bye. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.